That's a question which I sometimes get asked, particularly when I'm meeting up with other Presbyterian ministers at uh, conferences or at General Assembly or even in the local ministers' association. When I'm down in Sydney at uh, Presbyterian conferences over a cup of coffee, uh, you'll <clears throat> meet up with another minister and, you know, before you know it, so how's church going at Port Prezies? How do you answer a question like that? I wonder if you get asked that question from time to time when you're meeting up with uh, Christian friends from other places and uh, they want to know how things are going for you and they say, so how's church going? How do you answer? What do you say? Let, let me tell you what ministers say when we get asked that question by our colleagues and our peers. What do you think we say? I'll tell, I'll tell you, sometimes we, uh, we, we, we do aim to be able to answer that question openly and honestly and freely. But sometimes it's a bit hard when you've just met the person and you haven't seen them for a long time and they say, so how's church going? And there's also sometimes a bit of a temptation because uh, a temptation maybe to, to impress uh, because we want, you know, we're sinful beings as well and we sometimes want our minister friends to not think poorly of us because how church is going sometimes well we kind of feel it very deeply that it's you know it's really a question of how good a job are you doing <laughs> so what do you think we talk about if we want other ministers to think that our church is going well what would be some of the key kind of tests of or the key areas the key things that we would want to share in order to impress them and make them think that our church is going really well. Any thoughts? Michelle? Yeah, yeah. How many people have become Christians? That's a good thing, actually, to think about and to talk about. So uh, how many people become Christians are the thoughts? What? The growth of the church. The, the growth, of, what kind of growth, do you think? The growth of people. Growth of people? People coming in. So how many people are coming to church? Particularly how many newcomers are coming to church? Yep, that's, that's any other thoughts? I've got my own list. Um, what, do, what do you think? Any other? How many outreach opportunities have you done? And that, that falls into the category sometimes of activities. Um, you know, uh, what activities are going on in the church? Yep, yep. Uh, Nancy? Okay, so is it, it's a bit, all preachers would want to say, yes, I'm being true to the gospel in my preaching. Yeah, that's right. But So look, there are a few, these, these key issues, maybe others, but what I've sort of picked up and I know within myself as well, it's um, how many people are coming to church, particularly how many new people are coming to church, uh, what activities, what programs uh, the church uh, is running, uh, um, Here's another one which you haven't thought about, but how many people are on the paid staff of the church? Because right? uh, if there's you know, a growing staff, that is impressive. Another one is, and this is a big one for evangelicals these days, and it's how many people from your church are currently studying at Bible college or have entered into full-time Christian ministry? Right? Now, these, these are actually, they're all good things, aren't they? Or they might be good things, depending on what's behind them. Uh, and, you know, praise God when 
those things can be spoken of in a very positive way, but are they always a sign that a church is actually healthy? Now, they might be. They may not be. Let me explain that. I know of churches which have literally hundreds of new people coming along to them, uh, whose websites are just jam-packed full of the activities that are functioning in the church, uh, where they have a very large staff and where they even own Bible colleges. But does that mean that the church is necessarily gospel-centred and spiritually healthy? Well, it might be, but it might not be. It doesn't, it's not necessarily the indicator, is it? Uh, on the other hand, uh, I know of um, a good number of churches, many churches in small uh, country towns, sometimes country towns that are stagnant or in decline, uh, where the churches have no new people, where their activities are very simple, where they cannot even afford even half a minister and where they're certainly not populating the Bible colleges of, of, of Sydney and Australia. Now, what does that tell you? Does that, make us, does that actually tell you whether it's healthy or not healthy? No. No, it doesn't. Now, this morning, we're, as Andrew said, we're starting a new series. And... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, each year, and I don't mind saying this again because I, I want you to know what sort of structure we've, we've got with respect to the preaching, but each year I, I do aim for us to cover at least part of the gospel and uh, also for us to be uh, covering an Old Testament book, for us to be looking at some topical series as well and for us to be doing uh, a New Testament epistle. Uh, and Acts fits in there somewhere as well. And that's what we've been doing. In fact, if you think back over the last, what we've done this year, we've looked at uh, John's Gospel, which we completed. Uh, we've uh, worked through the whole of Two Kings. We've done a topical uh, series on, on Bible reading and on prayer. And so this morning I want us to start on, on a letter and the letter that I've chosen is Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica, otherwise known as 1 Thessalonians. And as we look at this first chapter this morning, I want us to be thinking about that big question. And the question is, how's church going? How's church going? Now, I've got a feeling we need to move that computer further away from the um, sound system. Is that right? Or something like that. Okay, good. So how was church going uh, in the first century Greek city of Thessalonica? If you've got your Bibles open at 1 Thessalonians on page 835. Um, last week in our series on prayer, when we finished up, we looked at Philippians chapter 1. And uh, we learnt how the Apostle Paul, on his second missionary journey, had taken the gospel to Philippi, and Philippi is just kind of down the road from Thessalonica. And after Paul and his companions left uh, Philippi, they went to Thessalonica. 
And if you want to read more about that, you can do so in Acts chapter 17. But let me just briefly tell you what happened. The first place that Paul went to in Thessalonica when he wanted to preach the gospel was the Jewish synagogue. That's right. That was his approach to reach the, the Jewish people first and the God-fearing Gentiles who attended the synagogue and then reach outwards from there. That was his normal practice. And when he did that in Thessalonica, we're told that there were some Jews who came to believe in Christ. Praise God for that. It's funny, isn't it? We're Gentile Christians, most of us, and we kind of think it's normal for Gentiles to become Christians, and we think it's abnormal for Jews to become Christians. <laughs> but that wasn't the way that they saw it in the first century. Uh, the Jews were the ones who were was normally expected would become Christians. Then in Thessalonica, uh, we're told that there was a large number of God-fearing Gentiles who attended the synagogue as proselytes and they too became Christians. Um, <clears throat> one thought that people has is, is that some of these Gentiles actually were quite... Um, uh, disillusioned by the immorality and the sinfulness that they saw around them in their own culture and they were attracted to Judaism uh, because of that but then they found Judaism was very narrow and so when they heard the gospel that uh, Jesus had died for Jews and Gentiles it was very, very attractive for them. And so a lot of Gentiles became Christians in Thessalonica. Now, when the gospel is boldly proclaimed, what does it do? Does it unite people or does it divide people? Divide? Put up your hand if you think divide. Right, put up your hand if you think unites. Anyone think both? I reckon it's both, don't you? It's, it's both. because, And you see, that's what happened here. Because, you know, some, it divide, the gospel divides people because for some people the gospel is the sweet fragrance of life. For others it's the stench of death. And others, some love the news about Jesus, others hate it. And sometimes the people who hate the news about Jesus will turn on those who love the news about Jesus. And that's what happened in Thessalonica. Uh, we see this in chapter 1 because in chapter 1 verse 6, Paul says to them, he says, In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy. The joy given by the Holy Spirit. In spite of severe suffering, and that's what happened in Thessalonica. They suffered persecution at the hands of those who opposed Jesus. And so the gospel divides people. But it also unites people. I want you to think about this. Because this really, this really turns me on. It's very exciting. Think about who became united. Most of these Thessalonian Christians had been Gentiles, pagans who, in the, who, it's, who had been brought up worshipping and serving false gods. And then there's Paul, and he'd been brought up as a Christian-hating, legalistic Pharisee. We think of the Pharisees as being the bad guys in the Gospels, don't you? Don't we? Paul was one of them. Paul was a Pharisee, but yet, what had the gospel done to Paul? It had melted his heart. It had changed this man. And it did the same to these Gentiles. They warmed to God. They warmed to Christ. 
The gospel had changed both Paul and it changed these Gentiles and the unthinkable had happened. The the gospel-hating, Jesus-hating, Christian-persecuting Saul was now united in love with Gentiles. Uh, The gospel divides, the gospel unites. It turns enemies into friends and friends into enemies. Now, a couple, that's what happened in Thessalonica. <clears throat> and a couple of years later, Paul wrote this letter to them. Let me read verse 1 of the letter. <clears throat> he says, Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Now, Paul, to a large extent, is following a cultural custom of how you write letters. We've got our customs, don't we? We write a letter, we start by saying, Dear so-and-so, and then we write our letter and we sign it, Yours sincerely, such-and-such. That's standard, isn't it? That's all changing now. We don't bother writing letters. We just send text messages, don't we? <laughs> right? But that's the standard. You write, Dear so-and-so, Yours sincerely, such-and-such, even if you don't feel sincere towards the person. People still write that. In the ancient world, the custom was that you would start a letter by saying, first of all, who you are, so they don't have to read down to the bottom of the letter to find out who's writing to them. And then you write who they are. And then you wish them some blessing. Uh, that, That was standard. And Paul adopts that standard procedure But there's two things I want to point out there. Firstly, he writes not just on behalf of himself, but on behalf of Timothy and Silas, his two co-workers. Now, it's obvious that Paul's the one who's written the letter, but he's written on behalf of the team, on behalf of their brothers that he worked with. Second thing I want to point out is this, that it was customary to wish peace on the recipient And for Paul as a Jew, the concept of peace or the concept of shalom was much bigger than just the absence of warfare. It it had to do with your overall well-being as a person. Paul wished peace on them. But he adds something very distinctive, something Christianly distinctive to his letter, and that is he wishes grace on them. You see that? That's unknown in the ancient world to wish for grace. But the two words, grace and peace, are very important. Because ultimately for Paul, the peace that he's talking about is the true peace. The peace that we have with God. The peace we have from knowing God as our Heavenly Father and not being at warfare with God anymore, but to have that peace with him that goes forever. And can you truly have peace with God without first experiencing God's grace? No. No. The peace that we have is a peace which the world can never experience apart from the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ died for sinners once and for all. 
So he wishes grace and peace upon them. And um, we know that, that Paul knows that they were at peace with God. Because in verse 4, Paul says that they have been loved by God and chosen by him. Now, how does he know that? How does he know that they're genuinely loved by God and they have indeed been chosen by God? How does he know that this is fair income? Well, it's because of how the gospel came. Verse 5. Have a look at that. In verse 5 he says, because... He says, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. The gospel didn't come just with words but with power. Now what does that mean? I have heard some say that what that means is that uh, when the gospel is preached, that it should also be accompanied by miraculous signs and specifically healing of sick people. And it's been said, there's been books written about it, there's been conferences held, it's been said that the, the preacher should not just preach the gospel but he should also perform miracles uh, and that if he does that, then... Uh, It'll be powerful. Uh, if he does that, then we'll see more people um, becoming Christians. Now, Paul sometimes did perform miracles. But that's not what he's actually talking about here. There's no mention here of uh, that kind of healing miracles, either here or in Acts chapter 17. You see, what is the power that Paul is talking about? Well, do you remember, I don't know if you remember from our John's Gospel series, but in John uh, chapter 14, when Jesus was promising that when he left that he would send the Counselor, uh, the, the Holy Spirit, and, and he said that when the Counselor comes, that he will convict the world in regards to sin, righteousness and judgment. That the Holy Spirit will will convict people of the reality of the sinfulness of their own lives. That he'll convict people of the, of the righteousness of God and the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ and he'll convict them of the coming judgment. And friends, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, when the Thessalonians heard Paul preach the gospel... They didn't just respond by saying, well, hey, that's really interesting. And yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, we believe that to be true. And then just go on living their lives as if they had heard nothing. No, the power of the Spirit is a deep, convicting power. And it, it's a power which takes that spoken word of the gospel and through that message, it miraculously changes hearts, it transforms lives, it changes people's thinking and their priorities and their behaviour and who they are as persons. That's what the gospel message does with the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what then is this gospel message? 
Well, when Paul talks about the Thessalonians in verse 10, he actually summarises the gospel in a nutshell. Let me show you verse 10 for a moment. In verse 10, he says that uh, it's been reported that the Thessalonians were people who were waiting for God's Son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, that's a verse that's easy to gloss over. It's easy just to rush past it. But if you slow down and have a think about what it's saying, it is profound. It is pregnant with meaning. It's packed with gospel truth. What is it saying about Jesus? Well, number one, Jesus is God's son who came down from heaven. Number two, Jesus died and God raised him from the dead. Number three, Jesus is going to come back again. That's why they're waiting for him. Number four, there is a coming wrath. Now, that's important because there's a lot of people who don't believe that there is a coming wrath. There's a lot of people who would say, no, that's never going to happen. There's a lot of people who would say that God, because he's a loving God, would never punish people. But the fifthly, fifthly, the great news, the great news of the gospel is that Jesus is the one who saves us from the coming wrath. It's all in verse 10, when you unpack verse 10. Jesus is the one who comes to save us from the coming wrath, and that is why Jesus died, to pay the penalty for our rebellion against God. That's the message. That's the message that Paul had preached in Thessalonica. Now, how do you respond to a message like that? Well, how did the Thessalonians respond? In verse 9, they turned from their idols to serve the living and true God. Now, as I said, these were mostly Gentile people, people who had been brought up bowing down to blocks of wood and blocks of stone and worshipping and believing in the Greek gods. But they turned away from these lifeless, false gods and they turned to serve the one and only living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. So let's talk about idolatry for a few moments. What is idolatry? Do we have idolatry today? Well, there's a whole range of different ways in which we see idolatry today. Uh, It's easy to see if you travel to some other countries, um, in Asia, in Africa and so on. You see idols all the time in those places and it's coming into our culture. Uh, There's other ways we see it as well. I saw a classic example of idolatry Last Sunday night, when I was sitting in my lounge room, uh, unwinding, just trying to relax for the at the end of the week, and I switched on the TV. Did anyone watch Compass last Sunday night on ABC television? Yeah, Dorothy saw it. Wow. It was all about Freemasonry in Australia. And uh, they had some footage of Freemasonry ceremonies. They had some Freemasons reenacting ceremonies because they said it was 
that was they were secret ceremonies. They couldn't film the actual ceremony, so they just reenacted the ceremony. They interviewed the uh, chief person of the Freemasons in Victoria and wanted to find out what Freemasonry is all about and that sort of thing. One of the qualifications for becoming a member of the Freemasons uh, is that you must believe in a supreme being. Well, that sounds good. That's actually a qualification for being a member of the Presbyterian Church as well. <laughs> but it doesn't matter who the supreme being is. Uh, you can believe in the God of the Bible, you can believe in the God of the uh, Quran or the gods of the Bhagavad Gita, or you can believe in a God of your own making, you can believe in any God. doesn't matter which God you believe in, doesn't matter who he, she or it is or who or what he, she or it is like, well, so long as you believe in a God. Friends, what do you call that? That's called idolatry. <laughs> uh, that's called idolatry. If that had been around in uh, the days of Hezekiah, it would have been demolished. Right? That's idolatry. Classic definition of idolatry. Now, that may be a sensitive issue for some people, and uh, if it is because you've got a friend who's in Freemasonry or a uh, spouse in Freemasonry or you're in Freemasonry or whatever, uh, if what I've said has just offended you, I'm actually quite happy to talk it through with you because it's important. To, I've got friends who've been Freemasons myself. Uh, it's very important to talk that through. But you don't have to get into that to be <clears throat> an idol worshipper in our uh, society. Uh, an idol is anything which takes the supreme place of God in your life. It's whatever it is that you're living for, whatever is most important for you, be it your family, be it your material possessions, be it your career, be it your pleasure, be it your health, whatever is more, whatever that takes the place of God in your life, whatever is supreme in your life, that is your idol. Because it's the thing you're living for. That's the thing which you think is going to give you the greatest satisfaction and meaning in life. I've got to turn from that. We've got to put God as first in our lives. We've got to turn away from lifeless and false gods and turn to the living and true God. So then, how did this message of the gospel change the lives of the Thessalonians? I want to take you back to verses 2 and 3 for a moment because in verses 2 and 3, Paul talks about his prayers for them and what he thanks God for in respect to them when he prays. And you can really tell what person values by what they pray for. Verses 2 and 3, let me read them for you. He says, We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continue continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now thinking about that, what sort of Christians were these Thessalonians? Uh, were they the kind of Christians who are just really happy that they've been saved and they're really happy just to soak it all up and just sit back and enjoy, enjoy things? Well, we should enjoy our Christian life. 
But did you notice three words there? The words work, labour and endurance. Did you see that? Now, if there was any Christians who could be tempted to put their light under a bushel and keep their mouth zipped about the gospel, it would be Christians who are, who are suffering persecution for the sake of the gospel. But they weren't like that. They worked, they laboured, they endured. And so what that means is that they, they're actually engaged and they're involved in the work of Christian ministry, uh, in telling others about Jesus, uh, of caring for each other, of building one another up and of sharing. Now, why? You see, you can be involved in Christian ministry for wrong reasons. Some people actually do lots and lots of church things because they're actually trying to boost up their self-esteem or they're actually thinking that somehow that by doing all these things that they can be more acceptable in the sight of God. But what was it that really was behind what the Thessalonians were doing? Well, there's another three words that Paul uses there. And they're the words faith, love and hope. Do you see that? Uh, that, that, that it was their, 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 their faith. They had faith in the gospel. They trusted in Jesus. They had love. They loved God and they loved one another and they loved other people around them. And they, they had hope because they looked forward to their heavenly hope. That's what drove them in life. Faith, love and hope. They are the motivators for us in Christian ministry. And in verse 6, um, Paul says, adds another dimension to this, and he says that they had actually become imitators of Paul. They'd seen who Paul was, what his priorities were like and what, how he lived, and they thought, well, there's a person who I'd really want to be like, as Paul imitated Christ. So verse 6, they had become imitators of Paul and they were also imitators of Christ. And therefore, in verse 7, they became a model. This was the model church. Uh, they become a model, we're told, uh, in all of Macedonia and in all of Archaea. Now, uh, they were the two provinces of Greece. So what he's saying is that you became the model church throughout the whole nation. And in fact, beyond there, uh, you're, you became a model to others as well. Because in verse 8, the message of the gospel rang out from them. Now, I checked up this Greek word, the word rang out, okay? Um, it's really hard to capture the meaning and the and the picturesque nature of this word because it uh, also has this, this idea of a, the clarion call of a trumpet. Uh, it can also be used to refer to the rolling thunder. And Paul uses a, a, a tense in the Greek which, which means that it's continuing on. It's not something that happened once, but it's continuing so what he's saying is that there's this clarion trumpet call, there's this rolling of thunder, there's this... The, the, the gospel 
that Thessalonica has become a hub for the gospel. The gospel is being radiated out from Thessalonica into all of Greece and into all of the known world. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? And why? Why were they like this? Well, friends, it was because the gospel had come to them with deep conviction, with power. It's because they were convinced that one day that there will be a day of wrath. And they were convinced that the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection has actually saved them from the coming wrath. They were convinced that any person, no matter who they are, no matter how they've lived, no matter what idols they've worshipped, no matter what immorality they've been involved in, no matter who they are, that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ can save them from the coming wrath which they deserved. Now, what sort of a message is that? Is that a message worth receiving? Is that a message worth telling? Of course it is. So how's church going? Um, friends, these days we, we often hear of particular churches that that are held up as being the model for, all, for other churches to follow. I don't know if you hear about that around the traps, but I certainly hear it a lot. And uh, through Christian media, uh, through books and through friends and so on, there are certain churches that are held up as being the church to follow. Now, uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing, is it? Uh, the Thessalonians were held up as being a church to follow. Uh, to, to model yourself on them. But sometimes I ask the question, if the Thessalonian church was around today and it was like it was back then, would it actually be being held up as being the model church, the church that you ought to be trying to be like and imitate? I mean, we don't know how many people attended, do we? We don't know how many new people there were uh, we don't know what activities they ran. Uh, we don't know how big their staff was. I, I can guess at that, by the way. My guess is that it was zero. <laughs> and they actually didn't have theological and Bible colleges there that they could have been populating uh, with their people. But what we do know is what they valued and what Paul valued in them and what God values. And that is their faith, their love, their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So how's church going for us? Uh, when other ministers ask me, uh, they say, Scott, how, how's church going at Port Prezi? I, I've kind of moved away over the last few years. I've moved away from telling them about the how many people are coming to church and how many people have gone into ministry and, <clears throat> you know, Peter Charles has joined us on staff and that sort of thing. I've moved away from talking about that sort of stuff. And what I want to talk to them about uh, is our faith in the gospel. I want to talk to them about how I've seen God at work in this church over uh, 13 years now and how we are actually... And I see it in the lives of individuals 
uh, see how the, the gospel has, has taken hold of the lives of people in this church. That we're, we're not actually focused on other things. Uh, there's certainly not much by way of liberalism in the church or beliefs that actually have taken people away from the gospel that I see in you guys uh, a deep conviction of the, of the truth that Jesus has died for your sins. That's what you love, that's what you value. So I can say to people, hey, there is a growing and a rich faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say, and his love as well. Uh, flowing out of that gospel, I see a lot of love for God uh, in our church, in your lives. And we're not a church that uh, is reeked with division and hostility and um, bad and awful relationships. What I see is how you love each other and caring for each other and connecting with each other and, and trying to encourage each other and encourage each other's families and encourage each other's children and teach one another to love and serve the Lord. Uh, there's a lot of love. Uh, so not, not always perfect, of course. And I see hope. I see that, that uh, you're not actually thinking that your hope is bound up in what you can achieve and what you can do and what you can own now. But there's this heavenly hope. And of course we see that most clearly expressed when some of our congregation, our dear brothers and sisters have come close to the end of their lives and are saying, I just want to be with Jesus. So we can talk about those things. You know what's even better? It's even better if others were to say this about us. If, if it was so true and, and if our engagement with others was so involved that people would say, hey, that's a church whose people love, a trust in the gospel, they've got faith in the gospel, they've got love and they've got hope. And now, you know, it's not an institutional thing. <coughs> And it doesn't depend on any particular people because as a church we're a, a group of individuals that make up this family of God. And so whether or not we as a church have faith, love and hope is going to depend on whether you've got faith, love and hope. Each one of us individually. How's it going? Are you putting your faith in Jesus? Are you seeking to love God and to love each other? And is your hope in the heavenly reality? It's an individual thing. We can't take it for granted because Satan doesn't want us to have this, this faith, this love and this hope and he'll use whatever opportunities he can to, to change that. So let's work at it. Let's not only work at being like that ourselves, but let's work at sharing that message with other people. So it might be said of us that uh, those people from Port Prezi, wow, uh, they actually live such lives amongst the community 
and they're able to tell others about the reason for that, about the Lord Jesus Christ. May the gospel uh, ring out from our church into our neighbourhood, into our town, uh, into our state, uh, into our nation. Let's focus on our faith, our love and our hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the faith, the love and the hope of the Thessalonian Christians that uh, having heard of the gospel message of Jesus who saves us from the coming wrath, that they believed in that and they uh, made it their own. And Father, that uh, the truths of the gospel rang out from Thessalonica so that they became the model church. They became the kind of church that we ought to be. So we pray for each of us individually, Father God, that we would be people putting our trust in Jesus, that we would be actively working hard at being loving to each other, to those around us, and firstly to you. We pray that we would be people who don't put our hope in the things of this world, but that we would have that hope in heaven and that our priorities in life now would be reflective of that. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.